Philippians chapter 2. In your Bibles, please. We've already seen in the course of our time together in the epistle of Paul to the Philippians a strong compulsion unto two ends. Unity and purity, right? Like-mindedness and Christ-mindedness. Unity and purity. We're not called to unity around standards. We're not called to unify around ideas per se. We're not called to unify around a vision for the future per se. We are called to unify around Christ. And of course, with Christ comes a vision for the future. With Christ comes certain ideas and such. But the call is to unify around Christ, to assume the mantle of Christ's life, to assume the mantle, the mindset of Christ's existence and to emulate it with every fiber of our being. As we come together around the purity of Christ, we elevate what matters to God. We approve those things which are most excellent, the things which matter the most. We, we make high those things that, that deserve to be there, uh, and we find the power thus to serve God effectively in His kingdom and the natural joy that comes with fellowship. Fellowship both one with another and fellowship with God. Now, when we say have the mind of Christ, or when we say be unified, or when we say be like-minded, the natural question is, what does that look like? Have you asked that question to yourself as we've begun this series? Okay, unity, right? And, you, and, and we say unity around the right kinds of things. We approve those things which are most excellent. Uh, we are, are holy. We're, we're without offense until the day of Christ. Um, what does this look like? And if you're willing to receive it, we're going to begin to answer this question this evening going to be um, stretching. It's a very stretching answer uh, to understand what this kind of unity, what this kind of like-mindedness, what this kind of Christ-mindedness looks like. Uh, it, it, will, it will push all of us. And so the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Paul's letter continues its very unique, intimate, and passionate tone as we continue in Philippians chapter 2. In verse 1, uh, it's filled with the basis for Paul's appeal. If there be any consolation in Christ, if there be any comfort of love, if there be any fellowship of, this, in, of the Spirit, if any, bowels and mercies. Paul says that if the link, if the relationship between himself and this church has any strength whatsoever, if there's anything in his exhortation, in his consolation that can move them, if there's anything in his love for them, if there's anything in his passion for their like-mindedness, if, if there's anything in his desire for their Christ-mindedness, if there's anything within this appeal that we've read so far that, that can touch them, if there's any comfort in the love which Paul has for them or which they have for Paul, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit between Paul and this church so that they share a desire toward the same direction, the idea here being, if, if there's anything in you that, that wants Christ as I want Christ, and if there's anything in me that wants Christ as you want Christ, if there's any common direction here, if, if there's anything where, whereby we can find this, this, this love for one another, this respect for one another, so much so that you will listen to me, that you will heed what I have to say, 
if any bowels and mercies, if any emotional attachment and desire to act in a manner which would be in line with the love and the passion that I share for you, if, if, if any of that is coming back to me, Paul is very earnest here. To whatever degree he's built up goodwill in this church, he is, if I can say it this way, spending it all on them receiving from him this message. Fulfill ye my joy, he says. Paul is rejoiced in the power of the gospel, right? In chapter one, both through his situation and even in his sufferings. Paul has regarded his state, difficult though it may be, with a sense of spiritual satisfaction that he knows the Lord's will and he sees a path forward in it. But this does not necessarily resolve the burden and the concern in Paul's heart for the church at Philippi. He is in a place where he is content. He knows where he is. He knows where he's going. He doesn't know the outcome yet, but he's content where he is. He's serving the Lord. He's seeing fruit for his effort. People are being uh, compelled to share the gospel, right? Either in pretense or in truth. And yet, he's still got this report about the church of Philippi. And he's so burdened for them. And for them to hear and obey his words in this thing, he says, would fulfill his joy, complete his joy, fill it to the top, to settle the angst in his heart for their condition and their disposition one toward another. And the thing that would fulfill his joy is that they would have a measure of unity, of like-mindedness. And Paul's description here is very interesting. Literally, in the Greek, it would, it would read this way. That you be same-minded, having the same love, having the same spirit, being of one mind. So same-minded, same love, same spirit, one mind. Same in mind, same in love, same in spirit. Not, not the same in body, not the same in appearance, not the same in personality. You don't have to change your personality to be a part of the church. You don't have to change those things that, 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 to, to conform one to another. We don't all have to look the same, sound the same, act the same. But having the same mind, having the same love, having the same spirit, having that same vision, same in outlook, same in direction, same in desire, same in intent. We sang this morning, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my vision. If we all saying that, genuinely asking, making that request, so that your vision and my vision, so that we're all seeing the same thing, looking unto the same thing, that's the idea here. Say, Pastor, that's easy enough. Let's find something we agree on and rally around it, right? Same mind, same, same love, same, uh, well, we all probably love something, right? So we can, we can find something to love together. Uh, same mind, we can, we can do that. We can find something that we agree about. Same spirit, we can, we, can, we, can, we can have this excited spirit about something that we can really rally around. But wait until you find out exactly what it is Paul and them, 
Paul is calling them to rally around. <laughs> See, it's not just rally around something. Paul says, I've got something for you to rally around. This is the thing. This is the thing. You approve that which is most excellent, right? Here, I'm going to tell you what that is, and this is the thing. This is the, the thing to have the same mind about. This is the thing to have the same spirit about. This is the thing to have one mind about. See, anyone can come, around, come together around something, right? Many people rally around common interests, common talents, common desires or lifestyles, and this is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, various ideals, various ideologies, we, uh, we, we see this. As a matter of fact, every once in a while, uh, there's something really nice about getting around a group of pastors for me. And we talk shop, and we talk about our churches, and we talk about what's going on in them, and there's this, there's this familiarity there, right, where uh, when, I, when I talk about some measure of grief or some measure of joy or some, some difficulty or, or some confusion, and they can say, oh, yep, I've been there. And there's this, there's this unity, right? This fellowship, because we share a common goal, a common interest. We have a common vocation. And there's something to that, right? You get a mom gets around another homeschooling mom and and uh, a guy gets around, you know, an engineer gets around another engineer or well, a sports fan gets around another sports fan and they find this common interest and they rally around it and they can get along just fine. So what is it that the church is called to unify around? See, this is one of the interesting things about church movements. Typically, church movements have a rallying cry and it's not necessarily something bad. It's not necessarily something sinful or wrong, but you gather people that share your burden. Uh, movements gather people that share the same burden, and that burden may be evangelism. And so there's a church that's just really, really about evangelism, and they share that burden. Not, not a bad thing. Or there's a church that's really into discipleship, and they share that burden. So it, it draws people that are really into discipleship, right, to that church. Uh, various different movements that draw different people because of their proclivities or propensities as they read the Bible, as they, they study the Bible, as they uh, form their own convictions, and then people with similar convictions come together. As a matter of fact, that's pretty much every church in a manner of speaking, right? That we tend to group together by convictions, by um, interpretations, and, 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 and the like. But what is the church called to unify around? And how is it any different than any other point of convergence? What makes us different from a political rally? What makes us different from a homeschool convention? What makes us different from a sporting event or a tailgate party before the sporting event? What makes us there's a few obvious differences there, I suppose. Uh, but what, what, what makes us different from just the convergence of people around some common interest? Verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. The meaning here is in the contrast. Nothing, Paul says, should be done in the church that is done in a manner of strife. Anything that is factious, that is divisive, that is contentious, anything that would seek to divide. Nothing, Paul says, should be done in the church that is in a manner that is self-conceited, arrogant, 
selfish. This spirit, the spirit of selfishness, the spirit of self at all, this idea of division, factionizing, these things are, have, they're not intended to have any place in the church. A spirit which would seek to cause division, a spirit which would seek to elevate myself, they are anathema in the church. What should the church look like? It looks like personal modesty. The word modesty does not necessarily have to do with what you wear. That's kind of what it's become today. A lot of times when I'm using the word uh, for, for something uh, that, that has to do with, with vi visual appearance, it's often the word decency. The word modesty simply means that you're not drawing attention to yourself. And so modesty in dress uh, can certainly have to do with how tight it is or how short it is or those sorts of things. But it can also have to do with how gaudy it is or how expensive it is, how bright it is, how um, fill in the blank. What, what's drawing attention, right? Modesty can have to do as much with my actions as my appearance. How I'm drawing attention to myself or how I'm not. I can be immodest as I'm preaching in the manner in which I preach, seeking to draw attention to myself at the expense of the word. You can be immodest in how you're listening, distracting and seeking to draw attention to yourself and pull attention from the scriptures. What it looks like, what the church looks like is modesty, a humiliation of mind which places everyone else above yourself in the assembly. Notice this word esteem. Let each esteem other better than themselves. It is a very interesting word. It's used 27 times in our New Testament. Early in the New Testament, the word speaks towards leading people or commanding people, towards those who are elevated above the rest. Then as we get into the epistles, it takes on a very different translational flavor. The idea of reckoning something to be true or considering something. So it goes from commanding or leading. It goes from elevating. The idea of a leader or a commander or commanding, leading, taking charge, uh, um, considering something in that sense to esteeming, counting, thinking, supposing. In a humility of mind, rather than in a conceit of mind, in a humility of mind, in a deliberate mind, in a mind that knows exactly what it's doing, it intentionally places others higher than, the, than itself. This doesn't mean that we spend all of our time flattering each other, putting ourselves down and praising others, but rather we interact with one another with singular devotion to elevating my brethren above myself, elevating their needs, elevating their concerns, serving them, loving them, regarding them, even at my own expense. And this is what the church is supposed to look like. The thing that is supposed to unify us is our deference and love one toward another, our service one toward another. And we will find as we continue that this is, in fact, unifying around the very philosophy that Christ came, exemplified, taught, lived, died, and everything, really, that characterizes Christ. 
which means what we are unifying around is Christ. Christ. The church is only working right when this is the unified mind, when this is the same mind we have, when this is the same spirit we have, that each person in here is looking and saying, how can I serve other above myself? So that you're serving me and I'm serving you. And each one of us is serving other. And so I'm served by you and you're served by me and my needs are met and your needs are met and we are, are devoted to this mind, unified in this love, unified in this spirit. When we're setting ourselves aside for the sake of others, when if something we want to do is in any way driven by strife or contention, we don't do it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much I have to put myself down. It doesn't matter at what disadvantage I put myself. If it's going to divide, if it's going to cause strife, I'm not going to do it. When if, it's something I, when if something I want to do is driven by a desire to elevate myself in any way, to serve my self-interest above others or above God, I simply don't do it. I, I, I withhold because my devotion, I have approved that which is excellent. And what is excellent is this unity. Now, again, we're not talking about heresy here. Well, if I, if, if I mention that the pastor's stealing money, it's going to divide the church. That's not what we're talking about here, right? We're not talking about sin in the camp. We're talking about that spirit of selfishness, that spirit of division that would say, I, I want something. I want a right. I want, I want something. I need to be served in some way. It's amazing how much of the church is devoted to this idea of me. person comes to the church and they leave and you sit down with them and say, you know, want to know if, if there's something we did, how are you doing? And they say, well, you just didn't meet my needs. Wait a minute. Where, where in the Bible does it say the church needs to meet your needs? That's going to happen if you're doing it right, but that's not the focal point, right? My, my, my point in the church is to meet your needs. And your point in the church is to meet my needs. And so I will step into the church not saying who's going to meet my needs, but rather who needs, who has needs to be met. Who, who needs emotional investment? Who needs spiritual discipleship? Who needs my time? Who needs my effort? Who needs my love? Who needs my, as we considered this morning, financial help? How can I pour into these people? What can I invest into each one of you today? How can I meet your needs today? We've lost this in the church. And this is the point of unity for the church. Is it any wonder then that our churches are weak? Remember how we talked about Paul's emphasis in chapter 1 on sharing the gospel and how important, how he connected sharing the gospel to this like-mindedness, this unity in the church. How can the church be effective at reaching out to the world if we can't even be effective at reaching out one to another? How can we fulfill the commission to go and tell if we can't even get our body to put one foot in front of the other? 
right? If, my, if, if I'm paralyzed, I'm not going to be very effective at going and telling. If my mouth is not in sync with my brain and one leg is not in sync with the other leg and my arms are doing one thing and my legs are doing another thing and my head's going on in the third direction altogether, then I'm not going to be able to communicate effectively the gospel. If our church is not unified around this point of unity, we will not be effective. And so when, when there's strife, let nothing be done through strife. If, if it's going to be done in strife, it's just not going to be done because I'm going to approve that which is excellent and that unity is more important than, than that point of strife. If there's something that, that, that I, if I want to elevate myself, it's just not going to be done because I'm going to approve the things which are excellent and that point of unity, serving others, is more important than, than vainglory than showing you I can preach well, than showing you I can sing well, than showing you I can play my instrument well, than showing you that we can put together a good choir or whatever it might be. We're not going to do it if it's pursuing vainglory, if it's pursuing self. And this becomes the standard by which we operate, the spirit in which we function. So Paul says in verse 4, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Others' concerns, others' needs, others' joys, others' contentment. You say, Pastor, that sounds miserable. Does it? Or, or are you just not thinking about it properly? See, the function of the church in this regard is not just that you set yourself aside and think of others, but it's that everyone else sets themselves aside to think of others too. Which means for every, per, for every, every moment that you're setting yourself aside to think of that other person, someone ought to be setting themselves aside to think of you. Think about marriage with me for a moment. Marriage is not a 50-50 proposition, right? They say 50, uh, marriage is 50-50. You give your half, I give my half. No, right? Marriage is 100%, 100%. Marriage is about me giving all of myself to my wife, regardless of how she treats me. And marriage is about my wife giving all of herself to me regardless of how I treat her. I set myself aside for my wife. I love her. I seek to bless her. I elevate her above myself all the time. That's my vows. That's my commission. Simultaneously, my wife is doing the same for me. She sets herself aside for me. She loves me. She seeks to bless me. She elevates me above herself. And if we're both doing this, then whatever I might lose by not seeking my own, is gained 100-fold to the extent that my wife is seeking my best. And this makes for a very, very contented marriage because I am pouring myself into her and she is pouring herself into me. Now imagine if we go into marriage the way people go into church. And many people do, right? Which is why the divorce rate's so high. He's not meeting my needs. come home from work or come home from some, some, some place of separation and, and the first thing out of the mouth is something having to do with something striving, something factious. You didn't do this today. You got to take the dog out before you left. You didn't empty the trash. The trash came today and it wasn't on the curb. strife. 
trying to elevate yourself, keeping the list of wrongs that have been done against you. This doesn't, it's not conducive to a healthy relationship. It's not conducive to a proper marriage. And it's not conducive to a proper church either. The church is not about you giving and giving and giving and being drained dry. Finding yourself miserable and used up and made completely irrelevant at the expense of others. And unfortunately, that happens in the church too, doesn't it? It's about you single-mindedly serving me and me single-mindedly serving you. It's about us regarding one another, respecting one another, us doing what is best for one another, about meeting your needs and then you meeting my needs. It's about helping in times of help, rejoicing in times of rejoicing, investing in times of investing, being invested in when it's time to be invested in. It's a family. It's a thriving community where your needs of today might be my needs of tomorrow. And so I invest in your needs today with full confidence that the day that my need comes about, you're going to invest in my needs in that tomorrow. And each of us is fully devoted to that. Each of us fully devoted one to another. This is what the church is supposed to look like. Would that the church would look this way. So that anything that threatened, anything that stood in the way of us walking together unto Christ-likeness and obedience would be rejected outright. So that anyone that would seek to start strife in the church would, would immediately be out of place. So that anyone that would seek to elevate themselves in the church would immediately be out of place. Not that they would not be welcome. They just would be out of place. That is not the spirit of the church. That is not the culture of the church. That, is, that, that, that sets a person outside of the mind of the church. Would that that were so. Would that any temptation to elevate myself at the expense of another would be rejected outright in the church. That if I ever sought to elevate myself, I would immediately feel as though I'm not right with the church anymore. This is not how the church operates. That any compulsion to divide or contend would immediately be put on the shelf because that, that is not, it's not worth it. It's not right. It's not Christ. And only those things which can be done in abundant and knowledgeable love, only those things which are excellent would be approved. And those things which fall outside of this spirit would not be welcome in the church. And by the way, they should not be welcome in the church. Gossip, not welcome in the church. It, doesn't serve my brother. It only serves to divide. It's not welcome in the church. Corrupt communication, not welcome in the church. It doesn't serve my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not welcome here. Lying, not welcome in the church. It does not serve my brothers and sisters in, the Christ, in Christ. It's not welcome here. Demanding my way, my rights, not welcome here. Creating cliques and factions against church leadership, not welcome here. Refusing to forgive one another, not welcome here. Division in the church, not welcome here. Infighting over what to do with time or money or resources, not welcome here. Because it doesn't serve my brothers and sisters in Christ. 
But here's what you can expect. If you need something, your brethren will do their absolute best to identify it and to meet that need. They'll drop everything if they need to to help you. If you do wrong, you can expect to be confronted. If you repent, you can expect to be forgiven. If you have a problem, you can expect your brethren to seek to remedy it. Because just as you've been elevating them, they're going to elevate you. I couldn't think of a better place to be. I mean, what, what a great thing that would, if, if, if that is church, if that is what every week was for us, if that is what day in and day out interaction among the church body was, who would not want that? Now, we know it doesn't always work this way. For any number of reasons, relationships go through their ups and downs. Communication breakdowns, people do get selfish, but we're, we're, we're terribly human, right? There's going to be bad days. There's going to be tough spots. Again, you think of marriage, right? As much as I desire to love my wife and to pour myself into my wife and she desires to love me and pour herself into me, there's simply days where that doesn't happen as well as it should. Not just because... You know, there are times where I can't give anything because I'm sick and she has to pour herself into me and then she can't give anything because she's sick and I have to pour myself into her entirely. But also because there are simply days where we get selfish, where we get pouty, where we get grumpy, where we get self-absorbed, where we, uh, we're, we're having a, a bad day. And those things do happen. But would to God that when they do, it would feel so out of place that an immediate correction becomes necessary and desired within the church, just as it is within the marriage. Just like in a marriage, the mindset is there. And when I'm, I'm being selfish and things aren't going very well and my, my wife is being so patient with me because I'm having a bad day, a grumpy day, whatever it might be, and then at the end of that period of time, I realize this, is not, this isn't what it should be. And I humble myself and I make it right with her and I start pouring myself back into her and serving her again. And things are right and things are back to normal and there's joy in the relationship, and there's open communication again, and things are functioning the way they ought to, and that, and that happens, and it happens fairly quickly. Why? Because the mindset's already in place. If the mindset is there, if the expectation is there, if this is what church is, and anything outside of this, anything that is done through strife or vainglory is outside of the mindset, then any deviation in action will be temporary. And then as we seek the Lord, we will self-correct with the help of the Spirit of God in time and in its way. Okay, so we have this principle. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. We, we've given some measure of examples within the church, trying to root this principle in some measure of reality of our day-to-day -day interactions. But how far does this go? How far do we need to take this? At what point do we say, nope, Draw on that line, the rest is me. This is, this, this is where I get off the U-bus and I, I get back onto the me train. Consider, in order to answer this question, the one who set this example for us and who asks us to follow it. Verse 5. Let this mind, what mind? Let each esteem other better than himself. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. That's the mind, right? This is the like-mindedness. This is the one spirit, the one mind, the one love. Let this mind be in you, here it is, 
which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ-mindedness. What we are doing here is we are seeking unto Christ's mind. If we're going to be followers of Christ, we're going to follow him into this mindset. If we fail to have this mindset, we are not properly following Christ. How is it that Christ set the example for such a mindset? Verses 6 through 8. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus is God in flesh, right? We talked about this last week in our Sunday morning sermon, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, that God, that inaccessible God who dwells in the light that no man can approach unto, was made accessible by Christ, right? The finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, rent the veil in two, gave us access to the Holy of Holies, so that God, who we could not go to, has now come to us. God with us. And when he came, he who was in the form of God, so that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, because he is equal with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, uh, with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was nothing made that was made. Right? And the Word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John 1. And so the Word, of, the word was God, and became flesh. So he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Think uh, through this with me. Jesus is God in flesh, right? We're not here to speak on the doctrine of that perhaps this evening. Perhaps we will at some point in the, in the future. But Jesus is God in flesh. The Godhead clothed in glory, sufficient in itself, needing nothing. I, I've uh, heard before this... this uh, kind of feel-good phrase in relation to the gospel. God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you because he, he didn't want to spend eternity without you. That sort of idea. Or, or, or God couldn't imagine spending eternity without you, I think is how it's phrased. Well, okay, God loves us. He wants to spend eternity with us, but he sure doesn't need it. He does not need us. He is entirely sufficient in himself. Within God, he has perfection. He has fellowship. He has everything he needs. He doesn't need you. And yet, God so loved the world. The second person of the Trinity took upon himself human flesh, called here the form of a servant. Not just in that he became a man, frail creatures that we are. Do you, do you realize what that means? He subjected himself to hunger. He subjected himself to pain. He subjected himself to exhaustion. God had not known those things. And yet he subjected himself to human weaknesses. Those things that we say, man, I can't wait till I don't have to deal with those anymore. He hadn't ever had to deal with those and he subjected himself to them. But he didn't just become a man. He became a man of humble birth. He was not born into the house of the Caesar, living with a silver spoon in his mouth, getting the best that this earth had to offer to him. He was not born as a king. 
earthly sense. He was not born as an emperor, earthly sense. He was born as a carpenter's son in a small little town of Nazareth. Very poor town at the time. Nowhere to lay his head. No notoriety to speak of. Nothing that would draw men unto him, according to Isaiah 53. And beyond just his obedience to the created order, subjected himself to time, not just to weakness and to illness and to hunger and to thirst. He subjected himself to time. He subjected himself to this sin-cursed world. He subjected himself to his human authorities. The God of all flesh submitted himself to sinful human parents. How might that have been? What, what an interesting thing that would be for the God of all flesh who says, I must be about my father's work as he's talking in the lawyers to the temples to hear mom and dad say, no, you're coming home with me. And the God of all flesh saying, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, and going home. Interesting. He did this. He submitted himself then at the end of all of this to the greatest enemy man has. He submitted himself to death. Not just any death either. It wasn't just surrounded by your friends as you pass away in the calm of the night. Your time has come. He submitted himself to a cruel, torturous death. And he didn't have to do any of it. He didn't need to do any of it. That's what I mean. He, we needed him to do it, but he didn't need it. He doesn't need us. He didn't need us to be with him in eternity. But he did it anyway. And we need to think about this as the example that Paul gives, the template Paul gives for the church to follow. What if we in the church actually treated one another the way Jesus treats us? Could we even say, from a metaphorical point of view, that we have died to ourselves for the sake of our brethren. But what did Jesus do for us? How much did Jesus yield? He had every right not to. He had every reason not to. But he did it anyway. Jesus set aside his rights, yielding them to the will of the Father, and thus esteeming you and I, me, better than himself. May I say that again? The essence of the redemptive work of Christ is that Jesus esteemed you better than himself. The God of all flesh looked upon the things of you before the things of himself. How petty does this make our contentious bickering? How fickle does this make our conceited factioning? How reprehensible does this make our selfish self-aggrandizing in the church? That the God of all flesh sought you before himself. That we would assume any measure of right which even God of the universe did not reserve for himself is quite a, quite a thought, is it not? And this is the call which we have upon ourselves as members of the church. This is, this is the unity. This is the unity. Don't, it's not that we're unifying around a particular look 
or a particular set of standards in, 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 in the most literal sense. This is what we're called to unify around. Elevate one another. Serve one another. Look upon, I look upon your things. You look upon my things. And as we're serving one another, loving one another, elevating one another, when we get selfish and we become carnal, when, we be, uh, when, when this carnality creeps up, we open the door to these deeper dangers, to greater division and such, so we avoid them. And if we could live this way, how wonderful would church be? And with this, we apply. Just two points of application. I had like five at one point, but I pared it down. Point number one. To have the mind of Christ is to intentionally set myself aside for the brethren. We are exhorted here unto the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is defined by setting myself aside for others. And not just others in general, but specifically the brethren. We're in the church context here, right? Just consider with me how important this concept is within the scope of New Testament teaching. You say, Pastor, wow, this is an interesting concept. Uh, I guess I hadn't studied Philippians 2 very well. Uh, I hadn't really thought of this before. Or, or yeah, Pastor, uh, Philippians 2 is really great. This is a great passage on this. This is one of so many passages on this in the New Testament. We, we, uh, how do we miss this? It's everywhere. I'm going to read many passages of Scripture, one right after the other here. They're going to be focused upon loving and serving one another. It's going to be focused on this concept. Uh, I'm not even going to be covering all of them. Not, not even, I mean, a good number, but this is, not, this is not a comprehensive list. Let's walk through some scriptures together in regard to this. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. Jesus is literally saying here, the definition of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is loving one another. The definition of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is this mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian Christian. John 15, 12 through 14. Really, we could have just read John 12 through 17. Uh, probably John 10 through 17. Uh, but anyway, John 15, 12 through 14. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. So he says, love one another as I have loved you. We see it in John 13. We see it in John 15. I'm the example. Right? This, is, this is the exact same thing that Philippians 2 is saying. Christ has set the example who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in his fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He loved us that much. God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son. This is how Christ loved you. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. John 17, 20 to 23. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, 
that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Jesus prays and he says, Lord, my prayer for my people, for my church, is that they would be one. As you and I are one. And how is it that the Father and the Son are one? That you've loved me and I've loved you. That Jesus submitted himself to the Father. The Father loved the Son. And Jesus says, my deepest prayer for them is that they would be made perfect in one. Romans 12. For I say, we'll, we'll, we'll be reading a, a good chunk of this. I begin in verse, um, verse uh, 3 and I, I go through verse 5. I actually, the reason why I don't have 3 through 5 up there because initially I had all of Romans 12. So if you want to read all of Romans 12, go for it. I just, I, I got through all those points and everything, and I said, I've really got to pair this back. So Romans 12, 3 through 5. For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are in one body, and every one members one of another. Romans 13, verses 8 through 14. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Stop the strife. Stop the envy. Stop the carnality. You don't have time for that, Christian. There's no time for that. Love one another. Serve one another. Invest in one another. That's the fulfilling of the law. There's no time for anything else. Romans 14, verse 13. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Skipping to verse 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith we may edify one another. I'm not going to do anything that's going to cause you to stumble. I'm not going to do anything that's going to cause, uh, uh, that's going to, to not work toward peace. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Well, they just need to get over it. I have every right to do this. Uh-uh. Well, I know it's going to cause problems in the church, but I've got to bring this up. Uh-uh. First Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. Even as unto babes in Christ, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hereto you were not able to bear it. Neither are ye now, ne neither yet now are ye able. For ye are yet carnal. Why are they carnal? For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Envying, strife, and divisions, that's carnality. 
Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But let each esteem other better than themselves. 1 Corinthians 10, 24. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Don't seek your own. You seek me, my wealth, I'll seek you, your wealth. That word wealth there being well-being, right? Prosperity, not I'm going to work and give you all the money and you're going to work and give me all, right? Prosperity, well-being. Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 through 14. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there, is, where, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Okay, so Christ is all, so you put off all these things, right, these carnal things. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, as those who have come out of darkness and into this light, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, patience, patience with one another, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. That's a pretty high bar. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Perfection, not sinless perfection, completeness. A puzzle. Have you ever done a puzzle? And it was a really hard one. And you're getting it together and it's starting to come together and it's looking perfect, right? Which means we are finally starting to see the image. It's looking complete. Perhaps you've gotten to the end of it and you've said, this thing is finally put together. That was really hard. It's done. And you've immediately flipped it over and glued the back, right? The reason why you glue the back is because you never, ever, ever, ever want to see even one piece fall out of that puzzle again because it was so hard. It was so difficult to do. I don't know if you've ever done that before. We glued a lot of puzzles in my day when we were growing up uh, because once it was together, it was beautiful. It looked good. It, it was perfect. And now it needs to stay that way. Charity is the bond of perfectness. You want to be a complete church. You want to have a church that is completely put together. The glue that's going to hold it together is charity. Charity is the glue that holds the church together. You lose charity, the church falls apart. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. What is our liberty good for in Christ? But by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Don't be surprised if you start to bite and devour, if there's strife and vainglory, that very soon the church will be consumed. You have liberty. You've been freed in Christ. You've been given many blessings. What are they there for? Not for you to do your own thing. It's for you to do the things of others. But by love, serve one another. James chapter 3, verses 12 and 18. Lest you think it's only Paul. Well, we had Jesus too, right? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. 
Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. That's the church. The church cannot expect to bear good fruit if it has evil roots. The church cannot have, cannot be a fig tree and expect olive berries to grow. The church cannot be a saltwater fountain and expect fresh water to come out of it. You cannot have envy and strife and be effective for the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot be a testimony, much less have the testimony among our children, much less out into the world, if our church is carnal. 1 Peter 1, verses 22 and 23. Seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. 1 John 3.11 For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. From the beginning. 1 John 4.11 and 12 Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. To have the mind of Christ is to intentionally set myself aside for the brethren. Point number two. The mind of Christ is the most important unity a church can have, and without it, the church has nothing. We are a church which longs for the power of God, longs for God's blessing upon us, longs for effectiveness in ministry. We have a set of distinctives by which we operate, things which we have uh, things which we do which have generally drawn us one to another. We might be unified among any number of these distinctives, among any number of standards, among any number of desires as, as it relates to how we would worship, how we live our lives, uh, uh, any of those things. And, and we might be unified among any, any of those things, standards, preferences, doctrines, uh, and such. But the most important unity that we can have in the church, and the only one that really, really matters, is the mind of Christ. The determination to set myself aside for the sake of my brethren. If I'm doing this, it doesn't mean that those other things will go away. It doesn't mean that those other things won't matter at all, but it means they will fall into place as I'm seeking you and you're seeking me, as I'm doing what's best for you and you're doing what's best for me, as unto Christ. For all of the other distinctions we might carry into our relationships one with another, 
for all of the other similarities we may or may not bear if we do not have this unity, if we do not share the mind of Christ whereby we regard other above self even unto death. If we don't have this mind whereby we look upon the things of others, we have nothing like what we need to have. We cannot rightly reflect Christ if we do not bear his mind. How can we say we're following in Christ's footsteps if we're not walking in Christ's footsteps? And we cannot bear his mind if we do not live determined to love one another as Christ has loved us. How are we doing today? Let me ask it better. I don't know if we should ask how are we doing. I think the right question is how are you doing? And not because the church doesn't have a part. We're talking about the church. But the fact of the matter is, you don't need to be looking at me and saying, Pastor, why aren't you doing your part? And I don't need to be looking at you and saying, you know, if, if, if I as a husband spend all my time saying, wife, why aren't you giving me 100%? I'm missing it. I'm missing it. I need to be saying, am I giving 100%? That's, that's the part that matters. And if I'm saying that, and if my wife is saying that, then we are then our marriage is where we need to be. So I don't need to be asking about you and you don't need to be asking about me. I need to be asking about me and you need to be asking about you. How are you doing in this? Do you carry the mind of Christ? We must ask ourselves this question and we must take personal inventory of our own interactions, of our own intentions, of our own desires in the church. Why do you do the things you do? Is there any propensity towards strife or vainglory? Or are we each esteeming other better than ourselves? Where there is strife, where there is envy, where there is division, where there is selfishness, where there is conceit, there is carnality. James made that clear. Many of them did. And where we bear carnality, we're not bearing the mind of Christ. And this is the great aspiration of the church. This is, again, it's not what it's going to look like every week because we're human. But it ought to be how we think every week. It ought to be what we step into the church expecting every week. It ought to be what we step into the church expecting as we interact throughout the week. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Let us seek it. Let us pursue it with all our hearts that we might be this kind of a church because it is this kind of a church, as the scripture said, as Jesus said, that the world will look at and as we love one another and say there's something different about them. And it's obvious. And I can't reproduce it no matter how hard I try. I need what they have. And the only thing that's going to do that it's not going to be the mind of unity around standards. It's not going to be unity around um, social goals. It's not going to be unity around generosity, unity around philosophy. It's going to be unity around Christ. That is, by, is the means by which all men will know that we are Christ's disciples. Are we living it? Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. 
More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.